Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I am the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. On this cold day in Princeton in November, it is my a delight and joy to introduce and host a conversation with Reverend Dr. Jiuman George, who is the Dean and Co-Director of the MA Program and Coordinator of the Thriving in Ministry Initiative at City Seminary of New York. Welcome, Jiuman. Thank you so much for having me today. I imagine it's, it's wet and rainy in New York City as well. Indeed. It's very windy. Yeah, the, uh, the days are getting shorter and winter's around, it feels like. Um, Gioman, it's been a while since we last spoke. I hosted you at my um, April online theology conference, the Lived Theology in Asian America conference, where you gave a splendid paper describing and, and engaging Indian American Christianity. I love to do that. Let me start with the journey of uh, how I came to New York City. Uh, with promises in her heart, a Malayalam Bible in her handbag is the South Indian Kerala language and uh, spices and saris in her luggage. My mom's older sister embarked on a journey to the United States. She grew up in a village. The family came together with the pastor, prayed over her, recited Psalm 121. Then she embarked on a journey, started in Delhi on Air France. As she took off, one time she told me she began to pray. And the prayers started to uh, go into biblical verses. She recited all the memory verses that she knew. So she began to recite Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as she got closer to the JFK airport, she recited Psalm 121. I lifted my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither, numb, will neither slumber nor sleep. Then she started singing a song called it is a song in Malayalam based on Psalm 121. So with that Psalm 121 and the Malayalam song, she stepped into the American soil. She came in the 1970s when the federal government when the president turned back on New York City, immigrants like my aunt and many others came, pulled up their sleeves, exchanged saddies for pants, and began the revitalization work of New York City. So she came as a result of 1965 Immigration Act. And I, with my family, my parents and my sister, came as a result of 1980, uh, the Family Reunification Act. I did not choose to come to New York City, but I choose to stay in New York City. 
I grew up in South Bronx. And formation of my faith includes migration and other events that shift my pastoral ministry and my mission includes 9-11. What does it mean to seek the peace of the city? My best friends are non-Christians. My neighbors are non-Christians. So what does it mean to seek the peace of the city? What does it mean to be a witness of the gospel? Over 19 shift my formation ministry. The social movements that we saw last year shaped my formation. And now, you know, as you say, this is November, but feels almost like spring, the weather. So this environmental crisis that we are experiencing, this climate change, is also shaping my theological reflection and what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as I reflect with my community and I and do my research based in City Seminary of New York, as I study the pilgrimage of the Indian Christians, I see three words, being, becoming, and belonging. The first generation represents that being. Webster defines being as a quality or state of having existence. So when my aunt, my parents came, they sought to flourish in their existence. They didn't want to assimilate. They didn't want to integrate. They didn't know what those meant. They simply didn't have the language. They saw United States, North America as an opportunity for economic mobility and providing more resources for the children. They saw United States as the land of milk and honey. So for them, was this B. For most of the, the desire was come, make some money, retire, and go back to India. That was the initial desire. But within 1.5 generation, I see them as becoming. Because they sought to fit in. And in seeking to become, they gave up so much. They believed that if they have the right American accent, if they can get the right dress or the suit from Macy's or Bloomingdale's, then they would become an American. So they would often let go of the Indian food and embrace the American meal. Everything American to become. So that was a challenge that they faced. But with the 2.0 generation, it is no longer becoming, it's belonging. Belonging in a community. So the 1.5 generation wants to become, to be part of that table of conversation. They want to be invited to the table. But the 2.0 generation not necessarily want to be represented at the table. They are making their own table. And they are inviting them to come and join together. So for example, during the social movements that happened last summer, the first generation and even the 1.5 generation was, you know, if you go out in March, what would happen? 
So that was their mentality. Over the 2.0 generation, the question was, what if, if I don't go? The question they're asking is different because their friends are marginalized. Their friends are experiencing injustice. So for them, the question is, what happens if I do not go? So I look at their pilgrimage story. These are the three words that come to my mind as a researcher, being, becoming, and belonging. And in all these three, you see a lot of negotiation and navigation happens during this time of journey. And my aunt was among the first of that, uh, of the wave of immigrants. But right now there are over 5 million Indian Americans, after which 20% are Christians, representing diversity of Christian traditions, diversity of languages, diversity of cultures. My own church that I pastor represents diversity of cultures and diversity of languages. So it is in, the, in many ways, the language of uh, my mentor, Andrew Walls, uh, is an efficient moment in which we are invited to, to see how we can grow together, learn from one another. Human, that's such a rich uh, beginning to our conversation. I'm captivated by many of the facets of this uh, uh, journey of being, becoming, belonging. And then your comments about the diversity, even within the local congregation that you serve. So maybe let me try to integrate the, the two themes that you were describing, this immigration narrative of first-generation new immigrants all the way to second and, and perhaps beyond generations. One, does your church have those cross-generational demographics? And then two, if so, how do these different generational perspectives manifest themselves at church? Is it something that creates tension and perhaps even division? Is it a gift that forces them to realize their unity in Christ? Tell me more on the ground how the being, becoming, and belonging distinction, distinctions manifest themselves. I'm sure you're probably hearing the ambulance passing by. A little bit. That's fine. I'm living it's in fine. New York City. <laughs> That's New York City <laughs> for you. It happens all the time. So we pause for a minute yeah. for the, per the person who may be inside that ambulance, the yeah. driver, yeah. you know, and all these people involved in that journey. We pray for them. So yeah. ministry happens all the time. That's right. That's right. Even while we are having this conversation. And indeed, this is also a part of that ministry. Um. My church is intercultural, intergenerational. At City Seminary, one of the practices that we do is uh, we take our students to different uh, neighborhoods of New York City. And uh, one of the things that I like to do is, especially with the, uh, uh, some of the students, is to look around, observe, what do you see? So for example, when you go to Jackson Heights, in Chinatown, you see languages, in, uh, in, from different cultures. You can see from Indian languages, uh, you know, uh, uh, all the different uh, language represented, right? So it, for these businesses, these languages are an opportunity to invite people into their stores. 
for example, in lower, uh, lower East side, which we are going with our students tomorrow, now there, there are McDonald's with, with, with the, with the Chinese language in it, right? There's Chase Bank with the Chinese language in it, right? So, which is that they want to welcome and invite customers to their place. In my community, language is one of the barriers. And oftentimes it becomes a place of tension. So from this experience of taking our students to these different places, what I want to have them see is if it is an opportunity for the business to have all the different languages, why don't we as a church see that as a welcoming invitation as well? It is, it is only a ten, tension if it makes it out to be. So in my church, what I do is languages is an opportunity. Language is not a barrier to worship, but rather it is diversity in which we can express God's love and we can worship God in the languages of our heart. It seems to me that the, there's a theological conviction behind your statement that language, different languages are an opportunity. They're an opportunity for your community to see how big God is so that people from their particular cultural and linguistic background can all worship the same God. It's, it seems to me that the diversity of the body of Christ says something about uh, the object of our worship, who is God. Absolutely. And church is a space, a safe space for all people to come and worship. And as a pastor, it is my responsibility to make sure that the first generation, as well as the 2.0 generation, worships and they have an encounter with God during our time together. And it's also an opportunity for to have dialogue. My aunt, I shared with you uh, the song that she sang, you know, which I lifted my eyes onto the hills. That sustained her. And now I see her son singing that song. So it gives us deep, deep meanings. And uh, one of the metaphors that we have here at the city seminary, uh, in a way to understand the city is called translation. And understand that how do we translate the gospel? And translation occurs all the time. That's right. The, the gospel is um, infinitely translatable to all the different cultures and languages in creation. As I envision the different generations and languages spoken at your church, and as we reflect on this history of uh, immigration post Heart Seller Act of 1965. I'm talking to various Asian American pastors in New Jersey, and one pastor recently at a at a lunch gathering shared how they've had certain ministry positions open for months. Whether it's a senior pastor position, a youth leader position, a children's minister's position, many pastoral positions remain vacant, and it's seemingly difficult to find gifted and experienced uh, individuals to, to serve these ministry positions. And so they ask me, do I notice a trend with respect to 
enrollment at seminary? Uh, and I say, yeah, my sense is back in the 90s, Princeton Seminary had maybe 90 to 100 Asian and Asian American students, and we have roughly half of that in 2021. There could be any number of different reasons for that. Uh, when I spoke with um, a sociologist of Asian American Christianity a couple months ago, he and I both observed how there was a immigration boom, especially from East Asia in the 80s and 90s. And that, that boom was driving first generation types of congregational ministries. Second generations were coming of age in the 90s. And that was one of the uh, dynamics was this tension between first gen uh, speaking their mother tongue and second gen uh, speaking English. Well, in 2021, the last 10 to 15 years, immigration from various countries in Asia are diminishing. And so there's less of an immigrant immigration demographic driver for the growth of first generation and, and perhaps even second gen ministries. So th that could be one type of reason for less seminary enrollment uh, in addition to other factors. I am curious amongst Indian American congregations, has the immigration from India slowed up in the last 10 to 15 years? And how is this affecting the demographics of church life? Excellent question. In terms of leadership, my question is, where are you looking? Oftentimes there are leadership from within. So for example, in my own church right now, I cultivate leaders. So when I step down, there's not a vacuum. There's already people in place to take the mantle and to take it to the next level. So we see also we see here uh, in the city, city seminary that, you know, that, that all across the cultures, people are already in ministry. I was said, now I think of myself as a dinosaur because I graduated from uh, Hunter College and then I got the call to ministry. I went to seminary and then I became, you know, I got my tools and then I started doing ministry. But that is rare. It is a, it is a really a luxury and a privilege to be a full-time uh, pastor. or sorry, full-time seminarian, apologize. Right now, you know, there are... A lot of people doing bivocational ministries. They're already doing ministry. So now they are coming to seminary, not to learn how to do ministry, but to receive tools in their toolboxes. So here at City Seminary, for example, you know, my colleague, Sarah, uh, and I are, you know, uh, along with Dr. Mark Gornick and uh, Provost uh, Maria Lu Wong and others are creating a, a college of learning that is responding to what is before us in New York City. You know, we know that research so shows that there will be more people living in city than in the, in the suburbs, in the villages. So what does it mean for theological education? You know, so we need to rethink theological education. And one of the things that we are doing here, which I had the privilege of being, uh, uh, be part of that conversation is to, is to reimagine how do you train? What is the pedagogical approaches? You know, and how can we have access uh, to bring uh, to the to the, to our pastors in our communities? Oftentimes, they do have a desire to do 
theological education, go to seminary, but they can't because they need to work. And they have a church. Right? So there's a different paradigm in which the Holy Spirit is inviting us. That we need to respond creatively, listening to the Spirit and to uh, paying attention to what is happening around us. I agree. I'm, I'm really fascinated by these uh, innovative models you've been describing, the bivocational type of uh, both education in seminary as well as the practice of ministry. How do you see the imperative to innovate both with respect to theological formation and education as well as in the field, in, in the congregation? How is this related to, let's say, racial minorities or even immigrants are there different trends and patterns and needs and challenges based on kind of racial ethnic contexts or immigration contexts? Uh, it's an open question. I'm curious. Again, all, all my research here at City Seminary, and we do quite a lot of research at the seminary, you know, reveals us, you know, it is very contextual and it's very relational. Uh, you know, so I think ministry has to start with that level. And I, I think it was a few years ago, Mark Gornick and um, Maria wrote this book, Stay in the City, you know, which is a short book, uh, which is very powerful. Uh, I think this answers your question. They give five lessons from their research. And I just want to read it to you, I think, because that may be helpful to you. Uh, the first lesson that they learned as they studied churches in New York City is one, begin with what is in front of you. And, and that is so true for immigrant churches, right? They start with what they have. And the second one is relationship comes first. So it all starts with relationship. Now, at a typical seminary at a church, we emphasize programs. Now, I used to be a youth pastor and a lot of programs. But at the end of the day, it was all came down to pizza. <laughs> so but rather than having programs, which after a while, young people and myself got tired, we need to start thinking about building relationships. You know, so that changes, you know, and community matters. It, 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 it has to be emphasis on community and also Taking the opportunity, the fourth lesson that I'd say is trying new things, taking risks. I mean, that, that's the whole immigration narrative, right? My, my aunt, you know, in her 20s, took a huge risk to try something new in a different place, in a different country. Completely trusting in the Lord and knowing that there's a community that is supporting her. All she had was this, that the promise that Jesus said to uh, his disciples, I am going before you. I will meet you in Jerusalem. So for my aunt, you know, God is going to meet me in the city. But like Paul, she did not know that there are many others there. It took a long time. Matter of fact, it probably took the 1.5 generation to slowly find out that there are others who are there who knows my name. So trying new things. And then finally, this is very crucial. Who you are is significant. Who you are is significant. Oftentimes in our immigrant community, we look down on ourselves, our accent, right? Our uh, diet all seems to be a hindrance. So we tend to be quiet. 
and we started to look down on ourselves. No, but this lesson, who you are is significant. You are beautifully and wonderfully created. You'll be invited by the spirit to lead, not just the congregation, but to seek the peace of the city and become the revitalization renewal of the religious landscape of the United States. No, so owning your story no, is very crucial. No, so those are the five lessons. But again, that's from Stay in the City book by Mark Gornick and my good friend, both of them, uh, Mark Gornick and Maria Luan. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I, I find those five, five principles to be descriptive of many congregations, immigrant congregations that I'm familiar with. So that's, those, are, those are five really helpful insights. One thing I've been thinking about, and I'm teaching my Introduction to Asian American Theology course this past uh, this this semester, and the various ethnographies that we're reading of Philippine X American Christianity, Chinese American Christianity, Indian American Christianity, the trans-Pacific context of Asian American life comes up frequently. It's very difficult to understand these various uh, Asian American communities without understanding their connections to the homeland. I'm I'm curious how things in India, dynamics in India get reflected or impact or challenge or kind of uh, influence and shape the congregational life at International Gospel Church or even in your own development as, as a scholar and theologian. How does, how does life in America connect back to life in India for, for you and your congregation? The, our religious faith you know, is really you know, uh, rooted from the, from the soils of India. I am. Uh, from Kerala, which is a southern state of India, which uh, prides itself in taking the heritage of Christianity back to Apostle Thomas. So if you go to a Western uh, museum, or you think about Apostle Thomas, for the Western Christians, not all of them, many of them, Apostle Thomas is a doubting Thomas. He doubted the resurrection of Christ. If only if I could see. So that's image that we have in the West of Thomas. But for me and um, our uh, fellow Christians from Kerala and India, Thomas is seen not as a doubting Thomas, but a daring Thomas. After he saw and touched the resurrected Christ, he left Jerusalem. He went to India. And some tradition says that he went to China and came back, became a martyr for Christ in India. So we see that Christianity moved east and south before it ever became to west. So we see that our faith, my faith formation, also traces its continuity back to Apostle Thomas. So we have that. And also pre-pandemic, we have evangelists, pastors moving, going to India and coming from India and sharing the gospels. And another big uh, impact on uh, trans, transnational Christian faith is the way in which reverse mission, you know, ministers began to come start as, you know, leading churches in the United States, but then they soon realized that not, it is not just for them, their congregation, but it's for the praying for the United States of America, praying for the peace of the city. No, they may be limited resources. They may not be able to do much, but there's a sense that, you know, I am called to, to bless America. I am called to pray for the healing of America. 
And many of the immigrants, they also went back to India, started doing mission work. So we see a proliferation in the mission field of different uh, organizations from social services to church planning to community development flourishing because of these movements. And also during the pandemic, one of the things that we, we saw at City Seminary uh, through our project called Sustained by the Spirit uh, and also the National Survey where Dr. Maria Lu Wang and I, I led that project along with the Dr. Mark uh, is that all of a sudden in church services, you have see people from India joining, not just to participate, but to lead as well. So for example, in one meeting, you know, we had a worship team from Delhi, the capital of India, North, and the preacher was from South India. And the majority of the congregations were from different parts of the United States of America, and also joining from London and uh, Gulf countries. So all of a sudden, this, during this COVID time, thanks to the technological platforms that we have, we're able to see these communal gatherings this, uh, and able to worship together. So, and also vice versa, people from the United States all of a sudden going to, uh, through the Zoom, ministering to people in India and different parts. So we see this fluidity and mobility, even though we have stayed isolated and away from one another. You're touching upon uh, one of the questions and topics I wanted to ask you, which is basically how has COVID-19 impacted Indian American churches and Asian American churches? And it sounds like one of the impacts is an opportunity to utilize technology in creative new ways. But can you, can you say more about the, the impact of COVID-19 on, on the churches that you're involved with and, and church leaders that you're in conversation with? The Kerala Christians, especially the women, the females, as the first generation, were predominantly in the medical field. So when this COVID-19 came, that they were, you know, caring for patients that they didn't even know they had it. My own, in my own church, we had doctors and nurses, you know, uh, going every day, you know, and uh, caring for the people. So that that. The Kerala Christian community was impacted heavily by COVID-19. And it changed the way in which, you know, one looked at uh, uh, relationships, the one we looked at community, one with everything. There was, much, there was not much time for lament because there was so much suffering going on. And I know one pastor uh, uh, in Queens, in his church, there were over 70 people who were impacted by COVID-19. So he would get up every morning around four o'clock and would pray for every one of them. And he would call them for five minutes or so and pray with them. So even though they could not be together physically, but in spirit, they were one. And uh, one of the things that came about as a result of COVID-19 was that more young people began to be become at the center of leadership. Pre-COVID, they were at the periphery because during COVID time, many pastors did not know how to use Zoom. <laughs> they did not know how to use technology. So all of a sudden, they were dependent on our young people who are very savvy in, in, in technology. So there was a partnership. There was a relationship. All of a sudden, they were, they were not 
doing ministry for one another, but they were doing ministry with one another. So there's a shift in paradigm that began to happen. Of course, one of the things that as a research I'm looking at is this, now that we are in between season, what does that mean? Do the young people go back to the periphery again? Or is this an opportunity for them to be at the center and together you know, worshiping the Lord and be the church? That's a, that's a really beautiful uh, coda to end on. We began by talking about being, becoming, and belonging as different uh, paths and, and chapters and seasons in the story of uh, Indian Am Americans and immigration. And you're describing how the pandemic environment is creating an opportunity for these different uh, generations to work with each other. Uh, Geoman, thank you so much for taking time this morning to chat with me. It's been a pleasure having you uh, on this podcast, and I hope we stay in touch. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.